6. It in the effort to secure more abundant subsistence either by raid or conquest of territory. Among primitive peoples this movement is simple and monotonous. It involves all members of the tribe, either in pursuit of game, or following the herd over the tribal territory, or in migrations seeking more and better land. Among civilized peoples it assumes various forms, and especially is differentiated for different members of the social group. The civilized state develops specialized frontiersmen, armies, explorers, maritime traders, colonists, and missionaries, who keep a part of the people constantly moving and directing external expansion, while the mass of the population converts the force once expended in the migrant food quest into internal activity. Here we come upon a paradox. The nation as a whole, with the development of sedentary life, increases its population and therewith its need for external movements, it widens its national area and its circle of contact with other lands, enlarges its geographical horizon, and improves its internal communication over a growing territory, it evolves a greater mobility within and without, which attaches, however, to certain classes of society, not to the entire social group. This mobility becomes the outward expression of a whole complex of economic wants, intellectual needs, and political ambitions. It is embodied in the conquests which build up empires, in the colonization which develops new lands, in the worldwide exchange of commodities and ideas which lifts the level of civilization, till this movement of peoples becomes a fundamental fact of history. This movement is and has been universal and varied, when most unobtrusive in its operation, it has produced its greatest effects to seize upon a few conspicuous migrations, like the Volker wandering and the Eruption of the Turks into Europe, made dramatic by their relation to the declining empires of Rome and Constantinople, and to ignore the vast sum of lesser but more normal movements which by slow increments produce greater and more lasting results, leads to wrong conclusions both in ethnology and history. Here, as in geology, great effects do not necessarily presuppose vast forces, but rather the steady operation of small ones. It is often assumed that the world was peopled by a series of migrations, whereas everything indicates that humanity spread over the earth little by little, much as the imported gypsy moth is gradually occupying New England or the water hyacinth the rivers of Florida. Louis Agassiz observed in 1853 that the boundaries within which the different natural combinations of animals are known to be circumscribed upon the surface of the earth coincide with the natural range of distinct types of man, the close parallelism between Australian race and flora, Eskimo race and Arctic fauna, points to a similar manner of dispersion. Wallace, in describing how the Russian frontier of settlement slowly creeps forward along the Volga, encroaching upon the Finnish and Tartar areas, and permeating them with slaw blood and civilization, adds that this is probably the normal method of expansion. Thucydides describes the same process of encroachment displacement, and migration in ancient Hellas. Strabo quotes Posidonis as saying that the immigration of the Chimbrians and other kindred tribes from their native seats was gradual and by no means sudden. The traditions of the Delaware Indians show their advance from their early home in central Canada southward to the Delaware River and Chesapeake Bay to have been a slow zigzag movement, interrupted by frequent long halts, leaving behind one laggard group here and sending out an offshoot there who formed new tribes and thereby diversified the stock. It was a nameless wandering, without destination and purpose other than to find a pleasanter habitat. The vandals appear first as a loose aggregation of restless tribes who must not be too definitely assigned to any precise district on the map, somewhere in central or eastern Prussia, 
far-reaching migrations aiming at a distant goal, like the Gothic and Hunnish conquests of Italy, demand both a geographical knowledge and an organization to high for primitive peoples, and therefore belong to a later period of development. The long list of recorded migrations has been supplemented by the researches of ethnologists, which have revealed a multitude of prehistoric movements. These are disclosed in greater number and range with successive investigation. The prehistoric wanderings of the Polynesians assume far more significance today than a hundred years ago, when their scope was supposed to have its western limit at Fiji and the Illus group. They have now been traced to almost every island of Melanesia, vestiges of their influence have been detected in the languages of Australia, and the culture of the distant coasts of Alaska and British Columbia. The western pioneers of America knew the Shoshone Indians as small bands of savages, constantly moving about in search of food in the barren region west of the Rocky Mountains, and occasionally venturing eastward to hunt buffalo on the plains. Recent investigation has identified as offshoots of this retarded Shoshone on stock the sedentary agriculturalists of the Moki Pueblo, and the advanced populations of ancient Mexico and Central America. Here was a great human current which through the century slowly drifted from the present frontier of Canada to the shores of Lake Nicaragua. Powell's map of the distribution of the linguistic stocks of American Indians is intelligible only in the light of constant mobility. Hadler's map of the South American stocks reveals the same restless past. This cartographical presentation of the facts, giving only the final results, suggests tribal excursions of the nature of migrations, but ethnologists see them as the sum total of countless small movements which are more or less part of the normal activity of an enrooted savage people. Map page 101. Otis Mason finds that the life of a social group involves a variety of movements characterized by different ranges or scopes. I the daily round from bed to bed, I I, the annual round from year to year, like that of the Tunguzorokan of Siberia who in pursuit of various fish and game change their residence within their territory from month to month, or the pastoral nomads who move with the seasons from pasture to pasture, I I I, less systematic outside movements covering the tribal sphere of influence such as journeys or voyages to a remote hunting or fishing grounds, forays or piratical descents upon neighboring lands eventuating usually in conquest, expansion into border regions for occasional occupation or colonization, i.e., participation in streams of barter or commerce, beyond at a higher stage in the great currents of human intercourse, experience, and ideas, which finally compass the world. In all this series the narrower movement prepares for the broader, of which it constitutes at once an impulse and a part. The real character and importance of these movements have been appreciated by broad-minded historians. Thucydides elucidates the conditions leading up to the Peloponnesian War by a description of the semi-migratory population of Hellas, the exposure of the more fertile districts to incursions, and the influence of these movements in differentiating Dorian from Ionian Greece. Johannes von Muller, in the introduction to his History of Switzerland, assigns to federations and migrations a conspicuous role in historical development. Edward A. Ross sees in such movements a thoroughgoing selective process which weeds out the unfit, or rather spares only the highly fit. He lays down the principle that repeated migrations tend to the creation of energetic races of men. He adds, this principle may account for the fact that those branches of a race achieve the most brilliant success which have wandered the farthest from their ancestral home. The Arabs and Moors that skirted Africa and won a home in faraway Spain, developed the most brilliant of the Saracen civilizations. Hebrews, Dorians, Quirites, Rajputs, Hovas were far invaders. 
No communities in classic times flourished like the cities of Asia created by the overflow from Greece. Nowhere under the Tsar are there such vigorous, progressive communities as in Siberia. Brinton distinguishes the associative and dispersive elements in ethnography. The latter is favored by the physical adaptability of the human race to all climates and external conditions. It is stimulated by the food quest, the pressure of foes, and the resultant restlessness of an unstable primitive society. The Earth's surface is at once factor and basis in these movements. In an active way it directs them, but they in turn clothe the passive Earth with a mantle of humanity. This mantle is of varied weave and thickness, showing here the simple pattern of a primitive society. There the intricate design of advanced civilization, here a closely woven or a gauzy texture. They're disclosing a great rent where a rocky peak or the ice-wrapped poles protrude through the warm human covering. This is the magic web whereof man is at once woof and weaver, and the flying shuttle that never rests. Given a region, what is its living envelope? Asks anthropogeography. Whence and how did it get there? What is the material of warp and woof? Will new threads enter to vary the color and design? If so, from what source? Or will the local pattern repeat itself over and over with dull uniformity? It was the great intellectual service of Copernicus that he conceived of a world in motion instead of a world at rest. So anthropogeography must see its world in motion, whether it is considering English colonization, or the westward expansion of the southern slave power in search of an exhausted land, or the counter-expansion of the free soil movement, or the early advance of the trappers westward to the Rockies after the retreating game or the withdrawal thither of the declining Indian tribes before the protruding line of white settlement, and their ultimate confinement to ever-shrinking reservations. In studying increase of population, it sees in Switzerland chalet and farm creeping higher up the Alp, as the lapping of a rising tide of humanity below, it sees movement in the projection of a new dike in Holland to reclaim from the sea the land for another thousand inhabitants, movement in Japan's doubling of its territory by conquest, in order to house and feed its redundant millions, the whole complex relation of unresting man to the earth is the subject matter of anthropogeography. The science traces his movements on the earth's surface, measures their velocity, range, and recurrence, determines their nature by the way they utilize the land, notes their transformation at different stages of economic development and under different environments. Just as an understanding of animal and plant geography requires a previous knowledge of the various means of dispersal, active and passive, possessed by these lower forms of life, so anthropogeography must start with a study of the movements of mankind. First of all is to be noted in evolution in the mobility of peoples. In the lower stages of culture mobility is great. It is favored by the persistent food quest over wide areas incident to retarded economic methods and by the loose attachment of society to the soil, the small social groups peculiar to these stages and their innate tendency to fish and help the movements to ramify, the consequent scattered distribution of the population offers wide interstices between encampments or villages, and into these vacant spaces of their wandering tribes easily penetrate, the rapid decline of the Indian race in America before the advancing whites was due chiefly to the division of the savages into small groups, scattered sparsely over a wide territory, Hunter and pastoral peoples need far more land than they can occupy at any one time. Hence the temporarily vacant spots invite incursion. Moreover, the slight impediment carried by primitive folk minimize the natural physical obstacles which they meet when on the march. The lightly equipped war parties of the Shawnee Indians used gorges and gaps for the passage of the Allegheny Mountains which were prohibitive to all white pioneers except the lonely trapper. Finally, 
this mobility gets into the primitive mind, the wanderlust is strong, long residence in one territory is irksome, attachment is weak, therefore a small cause suffices to start the whole or part of the social body moving, a temporary failure of the food supply, cruelty or excessive exaction of tribute on the part of the chief, occasions an exodus, the history of every Negro tribe in Africa gives instances of such secessions, which often leave whole districts empty and exposed to the next wandering occupant, methods of preventing such withdrawals, and therewith the diminution of his treasury receipts and his fighting force, belong to the policy of every Negro chieftain, the checks to this native mobility of primitive peoples are too, physical and mental, in addition to the usual barriers of mountains, deserts, and seas before the invention of boats, primeval forests have always offered serious obstacles to man armed only with stone or bronze axe, and they rebuffed even man of the Iron Age, war and hunting parties had to move along the natural clearings of the rivers, the tracks of animals, or the few trails beaten out in time by the natives themselves, primitive agriculture has never battled successfully against the phalanx of the trees, Forests mocked the expansion of the Inca civilization on the rainy slope of the Andes, and in Central Africa the Negro invaded only their edges for his land fields and planting groves. The earliest settlements in ancient Britain were confined to the natural clearings of the chalk downs and oolitic uplands, and here population was chiefly concentrated even at the close of the Roman occupation. Only gradually, as the valley woodlands were cleared, did the richer soil of the alluvial basins attract men from the high poor ground where tillage required no preliminary work, but after four centuries of Roman rule and Roman roads, the clearings along the river valleys were still mere strips of culture mid an encompassing wilderness of woods, when the Germanic invaders came, they too appropriated the treeless downs and were blocked by the forests, on the other hand, grasslands and savannas have developed the most mobile people whom we know, steppe hunters like the Sioux Indians and Patagonians, thus while the forest dweller, confined to the highway of the stream, devised only canoe and dugout boat in various forms for purposes of transportation, steppe peoples of the old world introduced the use of draft and pack animals, and invented the sledge and cart, primitive peoples carry a drag upon their migrations in their restricted geographical outlook, ignorance robs them of definite goals, the evolution of the historical movement is accelerated by every expansion of the geographical horizon, it progresses most rapidly where the knowledge of outlying or remote lands travels fastest, as along rivers and thalassic coasts. Rome's location as toll gatekeeper of the Tiber gave her knowledge of the upstream country and directed her conquest of its valley, and the movement thus started gathered momentum as it advanced. Caesar's occupation of Gaul meant to his generation simply the command of the roads leading from the Mediterranean to the northern sources of Tin and Ember and the establishment of frontier outposts to protect the land boundaries of Italy, this represented a bold policy of inland expansion for that day. The modern historian sees in that step the momentous advance of history beyond the narrow limits of the Mediterranean basin, and its gradual inclusion of all the Atlantic countries of Europe, through whose maritime enterprise the historical horizon was stretched to include America, in the same way, medieval trade with the Orient which had familiarized Europe with distant India and Cathay, developed its full historical-geographical importance when it started the maritime discoveries of the 15th century. The expansion of the geographical horizon in 1512 to embrace the Earth inaugurated a widespread historical movement, which has resulted in the European Azotion of the world. Civilized man is at once more and less mobile than his primitive brother, 
every advance in civilization multiplies and tightens the bonds uniting him with his soil, makes him a sedentary instead of a migratory being. On the other hand every advance in civilization is attended by the rapid clearing of the forests, by the construction of bridges and interlacing roads, the invention of more effective vehicles for transportation whereby intercourse increases, and the improvement of navigation to the same end. Civilized man progressively modifies the land which he occupies, removes or reduces obstacles to intercourse, and thereby approximates it to the open plain. Thus far he facilitates movements, but while doing this he also places upon the land a dense population, closely attached to the soil, strong to resist incursion, and for economic reasons inhospitable to any marked accession of population from without. Herein lies the great difference between migration in empty or sparsely inhabited regions, such as predominated when the world was young, and in the densely populated countries of our era, as the earth grew old and humanity multiplied, peoples themselves became the greatest barriers to any massive migrations, till in certain countries of Europe and Asia the historical movement has been reduced to a continual pressure, resulting in compression of population here, repression there, hence, Though political boundaries may shift, ethnic boundaries scarcely budge, the greatest wars of modern Europe have hardly left a trace upon the distribution of its peoples, only in the Balkan Peninsula, as the frontiers of the Turkish Empire have been forced back from the Danube, the alien Turks have withdrawn to the shrinking territory of the Sultan and especially to Asia Minor, where a population too great to be dislodged occupies the land. Conquest results in the eventual absorption of the victors and their civilization by the native folk, as happened to the Lombards in Italy, the Vandals in Africa and the Normans in England, where the invaders are markedly superior in culture though numerically weak. Conquest results in the gradual permeation of the conquered with the religion, economic methods, language, and customs of the newcomers. The latter process, too, is always attended by some intermixture of blood, where no race repulsion exists. But this is small in comparison to the diffusion of civilization. This was the method by which Greek traders and colonists Hellenized the countries about the eastern Mediterranean, and spread their culture far back from the shores which their settlements had appropriated. In this way Saracen armies soon after the death of Mohammed Arabized the whole eastern and southern sides of the Mediterranean from Syria to Spain, and Arab merchants set the stamp of their language and religion on the coasts of East Africa as far as Mozambique. The handful of Spanish adventurers who came upon the relatively dense populations of Mexico and Peru left among them a civilization essentially European, but only a thin strain of Castilian blood. Thus the immigration of small bands of people sufficed to influence the culture of that big territory known as Latin America, that vast sum of migrations, great and small, which we group under the general term of historical movement has involved in endless mingling of races and cultures, as Professor Petrie has remarked. The prevalent notion that in prehistoric times races were pure and mixed is without foundation. An examination of the various forms of the historical movement reveals the extent and complexity of this mingling process. In the first place, no migration is ever simple, it involves a number of secondary movements, each of which in turn occasions a new combination of tribal or racial elements. The transference of a whole people from its native or adopted seat to a new habitat, as in the Volker Wanderingen empties the original district, which then becomes a catchment basin for various streams of people about its rim, and in the new territory it dislodges a few or all of the occupants, and thereby starts up a fresh movement as the original one comes to a rest. Nor is this all. A torrent that issues from its source in the mountains is not the river which reaches the sea, 
On its long journey from highland to lowland it receives now the milky waters of a glacier-fed stream, now a muddy tributary from agricultural lands, now the clear waters from a limestone plateau, while all the time its racing current bears a burden of soil torn from its own banks, now it rests in a lake, where it lays down its weight of silt, then goes on, perhaps across an arid stretch where its water is sucked up by the thirsty air or diverted to irrigate fields of grain. So with those rivers of men which we call migrations, the ethnic stream may start comparatively pure, but it becomes mixed on the way. From time to time it leaves behind laggard elements which in turn make a new racial blend where they stop. Such were the 6,000 Edwaitasite whom Caesar found in Belgian Gaul. These were a detachment of the migrating Chimbri, left there in charge of surplus cattle and baggage while the main body went on to Italy. A migration rarely involves a single people even at the start. It becomes contagious either by example or by the subjection of several neighboring tribes to the same impelling force, by reason of which all start at or near the same time. We find the Chimbri and Teutons combined with Celts from the island of Batavia in the first Germanic invasion of the Roman Empire. Jutes, Saxons and Engels started in close succession for Britain, and the Saxon group included Frisians, an unavoidable concomitant of great migrations, especially those of nomads is their tendency to sweep into the vortex of their movement any people whom they brush on the way. Both individuals and tribes are thus caught up by the current. The general convergence of the central German tribes towards the Danube frontier of the Roman Empire during the Marcomannic War drew in its train the Lombards from the lower Elba down to the middle Danube and Ice. The force of the Lombards invading Italy in 568 included 20,000 Saxons from Swabia, Gepidi from the middle Danube, Bulgarians, Slavs from the Russian Ukraine, together with various tribes from the Alpine district of Norakum and the Fluvial plains of Pannonia. Two centuries later the names of these non-Lombard tribes still survived in certain villages of Italy which had formed their centers. The army which Ella the Hun brought into Gaul was a motley crowd, comprising peoples of probable Slav origin from the Russian steppes, Teutonic Ostrogoths and Gepidi, and numerous German tribes, besides the Huns themselves. When this horde withdrew after the death of Ella, Gepidi and Ostrogoths settled along the Middle Danube, and the Slavonic contingent along the alpine courses of the Drava and Save rivers. The Vandal migration which in 409 invaded Spain included the Turanian Alans and the German Suevi. The Alans found a temporary home in Portugal, which they later abandoned to join the Vandal invasion of North Africa, while the Suevi settled permanently in the northwestern mountains of Spain. The Vandals occupied in Spain two widely separated districts, one in the mountain region of Galicia next to the Suevi, and the other in the fertile valley of Andalusia in the south, while the northeastern part of the peninsula was occupied by intruding Visigoths. Add to these the original Iberian and Celtic stocks of the peninsula and the Roman strain previously introduced, and the various elements which had entered into the Spanish people become apparent. The absorption of foreign elements is not confined to a large groups whose names come down in history, nor is the ensuing modification one of blood alone. Every land migration or expansion of a people passes by or through the territories of other peoples, by these it is inevitably influenced in point of civilization, and from them individuals are absorbed into the wandering throng by marriage or adoption, or a score of ways. This assimilation of blood and local culture is facilitated by the fact that the vast majority of historical movements are slow, a leisurely drift, even the great Volker wandering, which history has shown us generally in the moment of swift, final descent upon the imperial city, in reality consisted of a succession of advances with long halts between the Vandals, 
whose original seats were probably in central or eastern Prussia, drifted southward with the general movement of the German barbarians toward the borders of the empire late in the second century, and, after the Marcomannic War 175 AD settled in Dacia north of the lower Danube under the Romans' way, in 271 they were located on the middle Danube, and 60 years afterwards in Moravia, later they settled for 70 years in Pannonia within the empire where they assimilated Roman civilization and adopted the Aryan form of Christianity from their Gothic neighbors. In Spain, as we have seen, they occupied Galicia and Andalusia for a time before passing over into Africa in 429. Here was a migration lasting two centuries and a half, reaching from the Baltic to the southern shores of the Mediterranean, starting on the bleak sterile plains of the north amid barbarous neighbors, ending in the sunny grain fields and rich cities of Roman Africa. The picture which we get of the victorious Vandals parceling out the estates of Roman nobles, and, from the standpoint of their more liberal faith, profiting by the dissensions of the two Catholic sects of Africa, shows us a people greatly modified by their long sweep through the civilized outskirts of the empire. So it was with the Lombards and Goths who invaded Italy, among primitive tribes, who move in smaller groups and must conform closely to the dictates of their environment. The modifying effects of people and land through which they pass are conspicuous. Ratzel describes the gradual withdrawal of the Hottentot people from Western Cape Colony far into the arid interior before the advance of coffers and Europeans by saying, the stock and name of the Namat was wandered northward, acquiring new elements, and in course of time filling the old mold with new contents. This is the typical result of such primitive movements. The migration of the Delaware Indians from an early home somewhere northwest of the Great Lakes to their historical habitat between the Hudson and Potomac Rivers was a slow progress, which somewhere brought them into contact with maize-growing tribes, and gave them their start in agriculture. The transit lands through which these great race journeys pass exercise a modifying effect chiefly through their culture and their peoples, less through their physical features and climate, for that the stay of the visits is generally too brief. Even early maritime migrants did not keep their strains pure. The untried navigator sailing from island to headland, hugging the coast and putting ashore for water, came into contact with the natives. Cross currents of migration can be traced in Polynesian waters, where certain islands are nodal points which have given and received of races and culture through centuries of movement. The original white population of Uruguay differed widely from that of the other Spanish republics of South America. Its nucleus was a large immigration of Canary Islanders. These were descendants of Spaniards and the native Guanches of the Canaries, mingled also with Norman, Flemish and Moorish blood. The Norse on their way to Iceland may have picked up a Celtic element in the islands north of Scotland, but from the feral group onward they found only empty Iceland and Greenland. This was an exceptional experience. Early navigation, owing to its limitations, purposely restricted itself to the known. Men voyaged where men had voyaged before and were to be found. Journeys into the unintended parts of the world were rare. However, the probable eastward expansion of the Eskimo along the Arctic rim of North America belongs in this class, so that this northern folk has suffered no modification from contact with others, except where Alaska approaches Asia. The land traversed by a migrating horde is not to be pictured as a dead road beneath their feet, but rather as a wide region of transit and transition potent to influence them by its geography and people, and to modify them in the course of their passage. The route which they follow is a succession of habitats, in which they linger and domicile themselves for a while, though not long enough to lose wholly the habits of life and thought acquired in their previous dwelling place. 
although nature in many places, by means of valleys, low plains, mountain passes or oasis lines, points out the way of these race movements, it is safer to think and speak of this way as a transit land, not as a path or road, even where the district of migration has been the sea, as among the Caribs of the Antilles Islands, the Moros of the Philippines, and the Polynesians of the Pacific, man sends his roots like a water plant down into the restless element beneath, and reflects its influence in all his thought and activities, every aggressive historical movement, whether bold migration or forcible extension of the home territory, involves displacement or passive movement of other peoples except in those rare occupations of vacant lands, who in turn are forced to encroach upon the lands of others, these conditions involve war, which is an important form of the historical movement, contributing to new social contacts and fusion of racial stocks, raids and piratical descents are often the preliminary of great historical movements, they first expand the geographical horizon, and end in permanent settlements, which involve finally considerable transfers of population, summoned to strengthen the position of the interloper, such was the history of the Germanic invasions of Britain, the Scandinavian settlements on the shores of Iceland, Britain, and France, and the incursions of Saharan tribes into the Sudanese states, among pastoral nomads war is the rule, the tribe, a mobilized nation, is always on a war footing with its neighbors, the scant supply of wells and pasturage, inadequate in the dry season, involves rivalry and conflict for their possession as agricultural lands do not, failure of water or grass is followed by the decline of the herds, and then by marauding expeditions into the river valleys to supply the temporary want of food, when population increases beyond the limits of subsistence in the needy steppes, such raids become the rule and end in the conquest of the more favored lands, with resulting amalgamate, 